Joel Rosenberg said this was the finest speech he's ever heard BB give. <laughs> well, <laughs> you can listen to what he has to say. Hopefully it's going to work. Just for 10 minutes. Thank you, Mr. President. Ladies and gentlemen, over three millennia ago, our great leader Moses addressed the people of Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. He said they would find there two mountains facing one another. Mount Gerizim, the site on which a great blessing would be proclaimed, and Mount Ebal, the site of a great curse. Moses said that the people's fate would be determined by the choice they made between the blessing and the curse. That same choice has echoed down the ages, not just for the people of Israel, but for all humanity. We face such a choice today. It will determine whether we enjoy the blessings of a historic peace, of boundless prosperity and hope, or suffer the curse of a horrific war of terrorism and despair. When I last spoke at this podium five years ago, I warned about the tyrants of Tehran. They've been nothing but a curse, a curse to their own people, to our region, to the entire world. But at that time, I also spoke about a great blessing that I could see on the horizon. Here's what I said, quote, the common thread of Iran has brought Israel and many Arab states closer than ever before in a friendship that I have not seen in my lifetime. I said the day would soon arrive when Israel would be able to expand peace beyond Egypt and Jordan to other Arab neighbors, end quote. Now, in countless meetings with world leaders, I made the case that Israel and the Arab states shared many common interests, and that I believed that these many common interests could facilitate a breakthrough for a broader peace in our region. Thank you. Well, you applaud now, but at the time, many dismissed my optimism as wishful thinking. Their pessimism was based on a quarter century of good intentions and failed peacemaking. And why was this, why were these good intentions, why did they always meet failure? because they were based on one false idea, that unless we first concluded a peace agreement with the Palestinians, no other Arab state would normalize its relations with Israel. I've long sought to make peace with the Palestinians, but I also believe that we must not give the Palestinians a veto over new peace treaties with Arab states. The Palestinians could greatly benefit from a broader peace. They should be part of that process, but they should not have a veto over the process. And I also believe that making peace with more Arab states would actually increase the prospects of making peace between Israel and the Palestinians. See, the Palestinians are only 2% of the Arab world. As long as they believe that the other 90% will remain in a warlike state with Israel, that larger mass, that larger Arab world, could eventually choke, dissolve, and destroy the Jewish state. So when the Palestinians see that most of the Arab world has reconciled itself to the Jewish state, they too will be more likely to abandon the fantasy of destroying Israel and finally embrace a path of genuine peace with it. Now, for years, my approach to peace was rejected by the so-called experts. 
Well, they were wrong. Under their approach, we didn't forge a single peace treaty for a quarter century. Yet in, 19, in 2020, under the approach that I advocated, we tried something different. And in no time, we achieved an amazing breakthrough. We achieved four peace treaties working with the United States. Israel forged four peace treaties in four months with four Arab countries, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco. The Abraham Accords were a pivot of history. And today, we all see the blessings of those accords. Trade and investment with our new peace partners are booming. Our nations cooperate in commerce, energy, water, agriculture, medicine, climate, and many, many other fields. Close to a million Israelis have visited the United Arab Emirates in the past three years. Every day, Israelis save time and money by doing something they couldn't do for 70 years. They fly over the Arabian Peninsula to destinations in the Gulf, India, the Far East, Australia. The Abraham Accords ushered in another dramatic change. It brought Arabs and Jews closer together. We see it in the frequent Jewish weddings in Dubai, in the dedication of a Torah school in a synagogue in Bahrain, in the visitors flocking to the Museum of Moroccan Judaism in Casablanca. We see it in lessons that are given to Arab students about the Holocaust in the UAE. There's no question. The Abraham Accords heralded the dawn of a new age of peace. But I believe that we are at the cusp of an even more dramatic breakthrough, an historic peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Such a peace will go a long way to ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. It will encourage other Arab states to normalize their relations with Israel. It will enhance the prospects of peace with the Palestinians. It will encourage a broader reconciliation between Judaism and Islam, between Jerusalem and Mecca, between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. All these, all these are tremendous blessings. Two weeks ago, we saw another blessing already in sight. In the G20 conference, President Biden, Prime Minister Modi, and European and Arab leaders announced plans for a visionary corridor that will stretch across the Arabian Peninsula and Israel. It will connect India to Europe with maritime links, rail links, energy pipelines, fiber optic cables, this corridor will bypass maritime checkpoints, or choke points rather, and dramatically lower the cost of goods, communication, and energy for over two billion people. What a historic change for my country. You see, the land of Israel is situated in the crossroad between Africa, Asia, and Europe. And for centuries, for centuries, my country was repeatedly invaded by empires passing through it in their campaigns of plunder and conquest elsewhere. But today, today as we tear down the walls of enmity, Israel can become a bridge of peace and prosperity between these continents. Peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia will truly create a new Middle East. To understand the magnitude of the transformation that we seek to advance, let me show you a map of the Middle East in 1948, the year Israel was established. Here's Israel in 1948. It's a tiny country, isolated, surrounded by a hostile Arab world. In our first 70 years, we made peace with Egypt and Jordan, 
And then in 2020, <coughs> we made the Abraham Accords peace with another four Arab states. Now look at what happens when we make peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The whole Middle East changes. We tear down the walls of enmity. We bring the possibility of prosperity and peace to this entire region. But we do something else. You know, uh, a few years ago, I stood here with a red marker to show the, the curse, a great curse, the curse of a nuclear Iran. But today, today I bring this marker to show a great blessing, the blessing of a new Middle East between Israel, Saudi Arabia, and our other neighbors. We will not only bring down barriers between Israel and our neighbors, we'll build a new corridor of peace and prosperity that connects Asia through the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, to Europe. This is an extraordinary change, a monumental change, another pivot of history. Now, as the circle of peace expands, I believe that a real path towards a genuine peace with our Palestinian neighbors can finally be achieved. But there's a caveat. It has to be said here, forcefully. Peace can only be achieved if it is based on truth. It cannot be based on lies. It cannot be based on endless vilification of the Jewish people. Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas must stop spreading the horrible anti-Semitic conspiracies against the Jewish people and the Jewish state. I mean, I mean, he recently said that Hitler wasn't an anti-Semite. You can't make this up. But he did. He said that. And the Palestinian Authority must stop glorifying terrorists. They must stop its ghoulish pay-to-slay policy of giving money to Palestinian terrorists for the murder of Jews. This is all outrageous. It must stop for peace to prevail. And anti-Semitism must be rejected wherever it appears, whether on the left or on the right, whether in the halls of universities or in the halls of the United Nations. For peace to prevail, the Palestinians must stop spewing Jew hatred, finally reconcile themselves to the Jewish state. By that I mean not only to the existence of the Jewish state, but to the right of the Jewish people to have a state of their own in their historic homeland, the land of Israel. It goes on for another 40 minutes, so if you want to watch it, get the Times of Israel and look up Netanyahu's UN speech. Okay, it's interesting, yeah? We're going to have a look at some of the issues which are raised by the whole situation, including the issue of peace and safety and what it says in the Bible. So let's just have a word of prayer and we'll look at the subject. Lord, we do thank you that you are the one who gives peace. Pray the Lord that you guide us by your Holy Spirit. Help me to speak. And may your word go out and accomplish your purposes. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the people of the Middle East, Jewish and Arab, that they may come to know you and to know peace through the blood of your cross. Through Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Amen. So is it peace and safety? This is a question you're going to look at. It has some prophetic significance. If you know the Bible, you may be aware that there are many prophecies which speak about a time coming when there'll be a peace in the Middle East, but it won't last, break down and lead to a time of trouble. And all this will be connected in some way with the return of the Messiah. 
Some Jewish sources also say it'll be connected to the coming of the Messiah. And there are rabbis who are saying that this whole program, which Netanyahu was talking about, is messianic and preparing the way for Israel to be connected with the nations, for the temple to be rebuilt and for the Messiah to come and to bring peace to the nations. If you read the Bible, you read the New Testament, you'll find that uh, there is a program which Jesus has set in motion, began with his return to heaven, and which will come to an end of this age with the second coming of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. Well-known passage in Thessalonians says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Messiah, or in dead in Christ, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we should always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness, therefore let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep in the, at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we live, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So comfort one another with these words. What Paul is saying here is that at some point in time, this event is going to take place. Dead in Christ are going to rise. Those who are alive at the time are going to be caught up to meet the Lord as he comes in the air. And a supernatural transformation will come to those who are taken. You get a new body, you'll be with the Lord, and you'll be with him for the rest of eternity. So it's a great hope for the believing in Messiah. Jesus said in Matthew about one being taken and one being left. He also said this is a word of comfort and hope, especially in this present dark time when many people see little hope for the future. Uh, the time is uncertain. If you're an optimist, it's pre-tribulation, and you'll be taken at any time now. If you're a pessimist, it's the end of the tribulation, and you'll have to go through seven years of trouble uh, before you meet with the Lord in this event. And you may not survive that time, so you may meet with him in death before that. But whatever happens, it will happen. The Bible says it's going to happen at some time in history, so be ready for it. Uh, it could happen at any time. Somebody who's a bit enthusiastic sent me a letter, uh, an email saying that it's going to happen on Yom Kippur 2023. Well, Yom Kippur has just started, so we've got 24 hours to go. But Paul says you don't know the day or the hour. Time is uncertain. And because you don't know the hour, therefore you should be prepared all the time. It could come unexpectedly as a thief in the night. Also says when people are saying peace and safety. But it won't be peace. The peace will lead to sudden destruction. It'll be a false peace. So beware of people who are coming saying peace. It may not be the peace that they're looking for. It speaks also about the labor pains of a pregnant woman, which is an image used many times in the Bible about the last days. The labor pains are painful. Uh, they're painful and it's something which happens when a woman goes into labor. Painful process which can't be reversed but ends with the joyful event of the child being born into the world. And so this when this process has begun, it's going to continue, become more intense until the parallel of the child being born, the second coming of the Messiah to the earth takes place. So, speaks of troubles as well, troubles happening. But ultimately, it will end with the establishment of real peace and safety in the Messianic kingdom. Now, in this passage, Paul says that uh, the world is in darkness, but you are not, hopefully. <laughs> This event should not take you by surprise. You should not be of the night or of the darkness. You should actually be enlightened by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit so you're ready for this thing to happen. And you know what is happening. You understand the times. And you have a real hope for the future. It says also, don't be sleeping. and Don't be drunk. 
Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, are drunk at night. If you think about it, being asleep and being drunk are two altered states of consciousness. When you're asleep or when you're drunk, you're not actually totally sure of what's going on around you. You may make some wrong decisions. Uh, the worst thing to be, if you're behind the wheel of a car, is either to be drunk or to be drowsy. Either of those things, you feel, stop driving and sober up or have a rest and wake up. Because if you're drunk or drowsy, you're likely to cause an accident. And so if you're not awake and you're not sober, then it's likely you'll make wrong decisions and you may cause an accident in your life or in the life of the people around about us. So this appeal to be awake and alert is one which is relevant to us. And sadly, much of the church today is asleep and is heading for a crash. Uh, making wrong decisions, joining the wrong crowd, actually, often against the Lord, some of them against Israel, and coming under judgment. Paul says, put on the armor of God, have faith, hope, and love, and the hope of salvation. In this case, he also says, you're not to be appointed to wrath, but to salvation. So there are two destinations which the human race is on. One is a robe which leads to wrath, to judgment. The other is a robe which leads to salvation. There's a broad road, which many are on, which is leading to destruction. And there's a narrow road, as Jesus said, which leads to life. Make sure you're on the narrow road, which leads to life. When he says that you're not set aside for judgment, it's an, for wrath, it's an idea, that's one scripture which is used to speak about the pre-tribulation rapture, that we're taken before the wrath comes. It's possible, but it's not certain. What is certain, actually, that believers can't lose, either you die go to be with the Lord, or you're still alive, it is coming, and you're taken in the rapture. Either way, you'll be taken to, to be with him, and you won't face eternal wrath. You'll face eternal life in his kingdom. Unbelievers are in the dark, facing wrath and judgment. So make sure that you're not in that camp. Now, as Paul says, there are many signs, and as the Bible says, there are many signs which point us to the second coming of Jesus. So are they happening now? Let's start off with this one we just looked at. Movement on a Saudi deal. Peace and safety for Israel. It's really a remarkable fact. I mean, the idea that Saudi Arabia could make peace with Israel, if you know your history, is pretty extraordinary. Um, Netanyahu referred to the G20 meeting. And the G20 meeting, which took place earlier in September, uh, said this about this project, this ambitious project, <coughs> which Western leaders officially announced during the G20 summit in New Delhi on September the 9th, is part of a pioneering initiative to foster economic growth, political cooperation, building on new possibilities created by the 2020 Abraham Accords and the normalization in relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, hoped for in early 2024. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu said this link will also realize a multi-year vision that will change the face of the Middle East and Israel, will affect the entire world. His vision reshapes the face of our region and allows a dream to become reality. Israel will be a central junction in this economic corridor with Israeli railways and ports, part of this new gateway, which will run from India through the Middle East to Europe and back. The proposal to link create the link which would start in India and pass through the United Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Jordan and Israel before reaching Europe is also seen as the latest indication that a historic peace deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia is likely in the months ahead. Uh, if you take that in, that is quite incredible. I mean, to say that that could happen even five years ago I think would be unbelievable. But they're talking about it seriously. Um, the US administration has set to cost around 20 billion, invest in that in it, according to Saudi estimates, which would boost trade, transport, energy, resources, and digital connectivity, include the construction of railways, hydrogen pipe, pipeline, fiber optic communications, and electricity cables. And this connection, as I said, some have seen this as a connection to bring Israel into the family of nations, so it's no longer a nation which is part, it's now part of the whole family of nations. And the Americans are very keen to get something in place by early 2024, before the US presidential elections. Saudi Crown Prince 
Netanyahu, uh, bin, Mohammed bin Salman said on US TV on September the 20th that his country was moving steadily towards normalizing relations with Israel. Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen said on Army Radio that a deal could be in place early next year. He also said that several other Arab countries, prominent Arab countries, are waiting in line to join in the Saudi process and make a deal with Israel. So you've just seen part of Netanyahu's speech. There he gave the map of Israel, Israel alone, and then Israel with the connection right through the Middle East, uh, through to India, and through to, Af through to Europe. Also, you know, he spoke about a blessing and a curse, a blessing of peace and the curse of war. He also warned about the activity of Iran. You can point to Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas, who all continue to be united in hatred against Israel and seeking to destroy Israel. So Netanyahu said that he had a vision for peace, uh, a world in which Israel and Saudi Arabia make a historic and transformational peace treaty and many Arab and Muslim states follow suit. Iran and the Palestinians choose peace instead of terrorism and nuclear war. He also brought in AI later on. He said the world cooperates to ensure that artificial intelligence brings dramatic new blessings of peace and prosperity to all of mankind. He said there's another vision, a vision of war. Iran and the Palestinians choose war instead of peace. The world does nothing to stop the Iranian regime from acquiring nuclear weapons and a terrible war erupts in the Middle East. Artificial intelligence replaces humanity with machines, jobs are decimated, tyranny, tyranny reigns, and AI leads the world into an unimaginable and catastrophic war. So, so those are two possible alternatives. Is he right on that? <laughs> yeah, they are two possible alternatives. Some people are shaking their heads, but uh, those are two possibilities. You've got to admit them. Which one's going to come? Now, this whole situation has got people who are interested in prophecy kind of excited because of a certain scripture in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27. Uh, this is the famous 70 weeks of years prophecy which Daniel gave, which well, actually was given to Daniel by the archangel Gabriel. And it spoke about 70 weeks of years, so 70 times 7 years, 490 years, during which time God's purposes for Israel are going to be accomplished. I uh, put it in three parts, 7 plus 62 plus 1 equals seven, 70. The 7 plus 62 times 7 years led, would lead up to the event you read in verse 9, verse 26 of Daniel 9, where it says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Uh, from certain investigations into this prophecy, it adds up exactly to the date of the crucifixion of Jesus, if you put it in, I think, 31 AD. So the one who is described here as the Messiah, who's cut off, but not for himself, is actually fulfilled in the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. It's one of the most specific and clear prophecies you have in the Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah. Even if you don't take the 483 years leading up to the death of Jesus, it tells you that this event's going to happen before the people of the prince to come, come and destroy the city, that's Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that's the temple. In history, you know that 40 years after Jesus came, the Romans came uh, after the Jewish revolt and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, just as Daniel said. If you take this scripture literally, then the Messiah must have come before the destruction of the second temple. If you can think of anybody else who can fulfill it, tell me. If not, believe that it's Jesus. He's the only one who can fulfill this prophecy. Then says there's going to be a period of a flood. Flood speaks of an invasion. And again, the end of war, there'll be desolations are determined. So you're going to have a period of desolations of Jerusalem doesn't tell you how long that period is, but in fact we know now from the fact that this happened nearly 2,000 years ago that it's a very long period of time. So we have a long period of time in which Jerusalem is desolate, is uh, the times of the Gentiles are ruling over Jerusalem, as Jesus said would happen. The temple has been destroyed, the Jews are dispersed into the nations. And then you have verse 27. 
It says then, he shall confirm a covenant or treaty with many for one week, but in the, wing of the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even till the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate, or that could be the desolator. So he shall confirm a covenant, some kind of a strong treaty with many for one week, for seven years. Who is the he? Now, some people say that he is actually the Messiah. It's Jesus. But that doesn't really make sense because Jesus didn't make a seven-year covenant with anybody. <laughs> made an eternal covenant with us. Uh, and also, generally in grammar, if you talk about he, you refer back to the last person mentioned. The last person mentioned in this paragraph is the people of the prince to come. Prince to come actually corresponds in the book of Daniel with the figure of the man who we call the Antichrist or the Anti-Messiah. Uh, and it says also the people of the prince to come, the Romans came and destroyed the city, so there's some connection with a revived Roman Empire, which this one, the prince to come, is going to rule over and make some kind of a peace treaty, some kind of a deal with Israel, which will last for seven years. Uh, now, this period of seven years, this, this last period of seven years is separated by a long period of time from the previous 69. Can you see that? And big question is, how come it's separated by this long period of time? Now, one explanation which actually pits in with the pre-tribulation view of prophecy is that what is fitted into the time between the end of the 483 years and the beginning of the, the last one, seven years, is the whole of the church age. Because after Jesus died and rises from the dead, God actually switches his attention from using Israel as the vehicle for salvation and the word of God <clears throat> to a new people made up of Jews and Gentiles who have come to believe in Jesus, which we call the church. Israel remains a people even in unbelief before God, and even in their history they will be scattered to the ends of the earth, but God says there's going to be a time when he's going to bring them back to the land which God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're seeing that happen now. So this implies that this beginning of this last seven-year period is sometime in the future, it's after Israel has been restored as a nation and it's begun with some kind of a peace deal taking place over Israel. That's why people get a bit excited when they hear about this peace deal which is taking place now. Also, you notice it says here that he will make a covenant with many for one week. This covenant will not just be with, between Israel and the Palestinians, it'll be with many. Now, one of the interesting things about this whole deal which is coming up now is that it is a covenant with many. Uh, it includes Saudi Arabia, and as we've seen, it also seems to have an involvement with the nations round about, other Arab countries, and even extending to India, to Europe, with a line coming through Israel, and it's being mediated by America. So you've got a whole host of nations which are involved in it. So it's not just one country, it's many countries. So a covenant with many for one week. And it's backed by the U.S. administration, which is actually keen on promoting this to counter the influence of Iran, Russia, and China in the Middle East. Israel is also, of course, <coughs> looking for peace and safety, understandably. Looking to be accepted in the region with a promise of prosperity, trade with the Arab nations and increased connection to the East and the West. So is it going to be peace? That's the big question. If it goes ahead, it raises an interesting question about the prophecies of the Bible. These indicate that in the Bible, in the last days, there's going to be a covenant with peace, a covenant of peace, promising peace, but it will end up with a time of unique trouble in the days before the return of the Messiah. You can read about that in Isaiah 28. Speaks about a covenant with death based on lies and deception. Jeremiah 30 speaks about Israel's time, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. Zechariah 12 to 14 speaks about a time when Jerusalem will be the burdensome stone burdening all nations and will eventually cause the nation to come against Jerusalem at the last battle before the Messiah returns. And in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, which has to be in the temple area in Jerusalem, uh, which sets off the great tribulation. So this has to, something to do with a peace covenant and something to do with Israel. So is it a peace based on truth or a peace based on lies? 
Is it part of a great deception or is it a great offer which has been made to Israel? One of the questions which is interesting is that this peace treaty is coming up almost exactly 30 years after Israel signed the Oslo Accords. Remember the Oslo Accords was when Israel made the first peace treaty with Israel and the PLO in 1993. There's Yasser Arafat shaking hands with Yitzhak Rabin under the auspices of Bill Clinton in America. Uh, That peace treaty opened the way for the Palestinians to begin the process of setting up an entity or a state of their own, starting in Jericho and Gaza, uh, now extended to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas ruling in Gaza. Now, interesting, there's a group called the Palestinian Media Watch, which is an Israeli group who monitor what's happening inside the Palestinian Authority. Uh, just this month, there was the 30th anniversary of the signing of this, this, uh, the Oslo Accords, and they published this paper saying they, they uncovered a statement by a Palestinian leader who admitted that PLO leader Yasser Arafat successfully deceived Israeli leadership into signing a peace agreement that he had no intention of fulfilling in 1993. According to the PA parliament member, Munib al-Masri, Arafat's intention from the first day was that the Accords would be another step in his stages plan to destroy all of the state of Israel. He only intended the two-state solution as the first stage. The next stage was to use any territory that Israel withdrew from, withdrew from as a base from which to destroy the rest of Israel and establish a Palestinian state from the river, from Jordan, River Jordan to the sea, to the Mediterranean. In other words, to eliminate Israel. Arafat compared this agreement to what he called the Huda Bayer Peace Treaty, which was a 10-year peace treaty which Muhammad made with the Quraysh tribe in Mecca back at the time of the beginning of Islam. Muhammad then broke that treaty two years later and attacked the Quraysh tribe and conquered Mecca. And this treaty was seen as a kind of legitimizing of Muslims making a peace treaty with an enemy when they are the enemy is stronger than they are, and when they become stronger than the enemy, then they can break the peace treaty and go to war against the enemy and destroy them. And Arafat actually compared this, the agreement, the Oslo agreement, to the Treaty Truce of Hudabaya, which was kind of sinister. Um, if you want to know more about this, there's a, on the Palestinian Media Watch, there's got an article called The Oslo Deception. So is this the same thing as you've got with What's happening today? Now, it seems to me that there are quite different, there are some different aspects to this. There are some, I think, who do generally want a peace, but there are some who probably will use it for the opposite purpose. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, you have a passage which speaks about a covenant with death. Uh, It says that the rulers of Israel have made a covenant with death, they've made lies their refuge, and under falsehood we've hidden ourselves. One of the questions is, is this another covenant with death based on lies which will lead to trouble for Israel? Now, one of the things which the Saudi plan wants to do is to take over the rule of of the Temple Mount area from Jordan. When Israel captured the old city in the Six-Day War, they took control of the whole of the old city, including the Temple Mount. There's the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, and the Western Wall in front of it. Dome of the Rock, Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest place for Islam, where the temple once stood. The Western Wall, the holiest place for Jewish people. The outer retaining wall of the temple, where Jewish people go to pray. Now, one of the interesting things about this place is that the Saudis have actually expressed an interest in replacing Jordan to take control of this area. Uh, They see themselves as the leading Sunni power. They have authority over the two holy sites in Mecca and Medina. Let's have the third one as well over Jerusalem. And one of the questions is, would they then have a more liberal and tolerant attitude towards Jews praying on the Temple Mount or a less tolerant one? Again, we don't know yet. The present situation is that only Muslims are allowed to have any kind of worship on the Temple Mount. Nobody else can pray there. 
I guess you can go up there and walk around and pray quietly, but you can't visibly or openly have any kind of religious service. Uh, you can't go in through the main entrance, which is up here somewhere. Uh, last time we were in Jerusalem, Barbara and I actually did approach the uh, Temple Mount and the place there, and some Muslims told us fairly clearly that we were not welcome to take any steps further. You can only go up through this gate here, which is called the Maghrabi Gate, on certain times, and Jews and Christians or non-Muslims can go up there, but they can't pray openly. Now, many Orthodox Jews go up there and I guess they pray silently. They can't pray, put on to fill in or make any kind of obvious prayers. They want to do that. Some of them also want to do more than that. They want to even offer sacrifices where the temple once stood, which was somewhere around here. Um, some of them even want to rebuild a temple, uh, the Temple Mount Faithful. You can go to their place in Jerusalem where they've got items for a rebuilt temple. Now, would the Saudis be any more interested in allowing this to happen than the Jordanians? Present time, it's a big no-no. I mean, any attempt to do anything would create real problems from the Muslims. They would riot and express all kinds of hostility towards it. But it's possible. After all, this is part of the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords are also about bringing Jews, Muslims, and Christians together. They've got a place in United Arab Emirates, which is a place where Jews, Muslims, and Christians can worship together in what they call the Abraham Family House. Some have even suggested that there may be part of the peace deal to allow some kind of a building for Jews on the Temple Mount, which would be seen as a kind of interfaith place. Sounds very far-fetched, but it's possible. And the Bible does seem to indicate that there would be some kind of a restoration of a temple in the last days. Now, it's not certain. If it does come, then it says that uh, it'll be broken halfway through. But it's interesting that this is the situation at this present time. Now, the big question is, what, where do the Saudis stand on the Palestinian question? Now, it seems from what I've read that the leader of uh, Saudi, Mohammed bin Salam, is willing to go ahead at the present time without re a resolution of the Palestinians. But actually, at the UN General Assembly on Saturday, the Foreign Minister, Faisal bin Faran, said that any solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict would need to include an independent Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. Now, if you know anything about the politics of the region, that is a big no-no for Israel. There's no way that Israel would agree to that. So if the Saudis won't go any further without that happening, then that's the end of it. It's not going to go any further. So that's an interesting question. I don't know whether it's going to be an insoluble boundary. Some people say it's not. Some people say they will still go ahead, or some people say they've even already agreed to some kind of agreement. We will see. It's the biggest problem. And the problem would be that if Netanyahu actually went along with that, then his ruling coalition would also split. His, the right wing of his coalition would not go along with it. Uh, and his government would fall. Maybe he could then make a coalition with the more moderate states, uh, more moderate Israeli parties uh, under Benny Gantz or Yair Lapid, but they've said previously they wouldn't want to serve under Netanyahu. And one article in the Jerusalem Post said that Netanyahu may himself resign in order to make way for this to be a possibility. Again, we don't know what that's going to happen. The other possibility is that war could break out with Iran and Hezbollah. Uh, in his UN speech, Netanyahu referred to the curse of Iran. Iran is nuclear-armed, supporting uh, Islamist proxies, and is right now helping the Hezbollah to build an airport and a base with Hezbollah 10, meters, 10 miles north of the border with Israel. And Israel is basically saying that they're going to knock it out. If they do, it could start a war with uh, Hezbollah, and even with Iran. There's also growing unrest in the West Bank and Gaza, which is being supplied by Iran as well. So these, th these are all things which could make it not go ahead. But if it does go ahead, it's a really big deal. <laughs> I have to tell you that. It would be an enormous event. And it would lead to things which would lead up to the second coming of the Messiah. Now, if, it is, if this is to do with the second coming of Jesus, then we could expect that this would happen sometime in the future, 
maybe in the not too distant future. One of the interesting things which people have said is that if you take the pre-tribulation view, then the seven-year period of the tribulation begins with the signing of this treaty. So before that happens, the rapture of the church takes place. So can you just see a little bit of implication of that? That can mean that if this is on the way, then the rapture of the church is also on the way. If it is the fulfillment of this treaty. Then Israel will be in the frame. Israel will be the center of attention for God and his salvific purposes. According to Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 Jews will be saved from tribes of Israel and preach the gospel during the tribulation period. Two witnesses will prophesy in Jerusalem and eventually the spirit will be poured out upon Israel as they look upon him whom they have pierced in Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. All those things can happen in the final seven years because God is then going to be dealing with Israel and bring them to the Messiah before the Messiah himself returns to Jerusalem and sets up his kingdom from Jerusalem. So what I've just told you may be just another political event which won't get anywhere. Or it may be the beginning of something which will lead pretty soon towards the fulfillment of some of the key prophecies relating to the end times and the return of the Messiah. Okay, let's look at one or two other things. Uh, the UN also has a seven-year plan. Uh, in August, um, the Secretary General Guterres, speaking about global warming, he said that the era of global warming has ended, the era of global boiling has arrived, the air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. It is still possible to get global temperatures rise to 1.5 degrees. He also called for the immediate dismantling of fossil fuel industry for human survival and the need to work for the sustainable development goals. There are the sustainable development goals. Probably you can't read it very well. But it's a plan which is on its way. And the UN has just announced at its conference this year that they need a seven, year, seven years of accelerated transformative action to achieve SDGs. These are the seven sustainable development goals. They include no poverty, zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, uh, sustainable cities and communities, climate action, peace, justice, and strong institutions, partnership for the goals. All sounds good, doesn't it? Some people have said that zero poverty means welfare dependence for everybody. Zero hunger means restricted food, and we're all only supplied with food by the government. Good health means that you have a vaccine-controlled health system, which if you don't conform to, you won't get into. Quality education means you have mass indoctrination by the uh, New World Order. Gender equality means you have LGBT indoctrination and destruction of the family. Reduced inequalities means a form of communism with poverty for the masses, including the present middle classes, and extreme wealth for the elite. Sustainable cities and communities means the 15-minute cities with control of your movement. Climate action means that you have to get to zero carbon, which will make everybody colder, poorer, and hungrier, but will make no change to the weather. Peace, justice, and strong institutions means a controlled totalitarian political system. Partnership for the goals means a one-world government under the UN. Well, that's a skeptical approach, but it's interesting they're talking about a seven-year plan. Who's everybody talking about seven-year plans? Hmm. Also, we have the G20, which happened just recently. Here's Our Lady, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the EU president. She looks pretty happy. She's giving a speech about how she's going to make digital control. Two guys behind her don't look too impressed, actually. But anyway, according to the EU Times, leaders of the G20 signed a treaty last week to roll out the World Economic Forum's digital IDs and cashless societies, which will be mandatory for all people who wish to participate in society. G20 leaders have agreed to impose these policies on their populations without giving the public a chance to vote. The globalist body also revealed that discussions are underway to create strict international regulations for cryptocurrencies, which will allow governments to replace them with central bank digital currencies. 
The summit, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen called for an international regulatory body for artificial intelligence. She advocated global cooperation to usher in digital IDs and the challenges presented by AI. She called for the United Nations to have a role in AI regulation and called the European Union's digital COVID certificate a perfect model for digital public trans infrastructures, which would include digital IDs. You follow what all that means? She's talking about kind of world government with the EU, UN, bringing in some kind of digital structure which will control your ability to buy and sell, to travel, also to express your opinions. Uh, some would say you're going to have to need uh, permission to put out talks like this on the internet, and they won't give it to you if you don't like it. Uh, and there's going to be a growing control. They're going to control what you can say and what you can't say. And critics say that these proposals could allow the government authorities to impose a control system on the population, including the kind of social credit score system which they have in China, which can decide how the citizens spend their money. Uh, on the subject of AI, it's interesting that Mr. Putin once said, whoever controls AI will control the world. <coughs> if the EU and the UN develops a way to control AI, it can then manipulate it to create a kind of digital slave state, which can also shut down freedom of speech and religion and replace any alternative views to their narrative. It appears that some people are working on this project. They're also talking about AI replacing God. Probably you may recognize this picture or Michelangelo's picture in the Sistine Chapel of God reaching out to Adam at creation. You've got the AI finger. Uh, found an article by a man called Jacob Thompson on a Christian news site called Wine Press News. Read you a few ex extracts from it. So Google founder and Silicon Valley artificial intelligence engineers said, we are creating God. Quotes from an article by Nick Bilton in Vanity Fair in which tech engineers told him what they were doing with AI. It's just the next step in evolution, I'm serious. Larry Page, the Google co-founder, said. An engineer from Silicon Valley, the home to some of the latest and cutting-edge technologies in the world, has said that they and others who are working on artificial intelligence are creating God, this all-knowing, all-powerful machine that can do it all for mankind. One researcher told him plainly, we're creating God, we're creating conscious machines. Does that sound a good idea? According to his research, Nick Bilton says AI has been touted as being able to solve all of the world's problems or destroy every single human on the planet in the snap of a finger, or both. Machines that will potentially answer all of our unanswerable questions. Are we alone in the universe? What is consciousness? Why are we here? Thinking machines that could cure cancer, allow us to live toward 150 years old, maybe 200 years old. Machines that some estimate could take over 30% of all jobs within the next decade from stock traders <coughs> to truck drivers to accountants and lawyers, bookkeepers, all things creative, actors, writers, musicians, painters, something that would go to war with for us or likely against us. In the span of just six months, the article highlights some of the things AI has transformed and openly accomplished in the world today such as programs learning to write stories in the style of Ernest Hemingway or Bugs Bunny or the King James Bible. Some are talking about using AI to rewrite the Bible uh, to make it culturally relevant in today's world. So remove the bits they don't like and rewrite it. AI also speaks of therapists emulating dead relatives to keep their memories alive so you can communicate with the dead. People even discussing using AI to create entirely new species of animals or viruses or exploring human characteristics such as creating a breed of super soldiers who are stronger, have less empathy, all through AI-based genetic engineering. So there are tremendous possibilities. Good to find cures for diseases, perhaps find problems, solutions to problems like poverty climate change, if it's a real problem, uh, but they're almost equally or more so worst case cases which include possibly destroying the human race. 
Uh, Larry Page, who's a famed computer scientist and entrepreneur who founded Google, said that AI is on course to reach artificial general intelligence, creating super intelligent machines that will simply just be rid of us living folk, adding that this is only the next step in human evolution. Just the next step in evolution. Elon Musk also confirmed that chaps like Page are really trying to recreate an AI god. My perception was that Larry was not taking AI safety seriously enough. He really seems to want digital superintelligence, basically digital God, if you will, as soon as possible. That's what Elon Musk said on Fox News. Uh, Bilton additionally wrote, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man will ever make. The geeks working on this are relentless in creating their new God. They say it will bring prosperity to all. Uh, this guy, Sam Altman, is the co-founder of OpenAI and founder of something called WorldCoin. According to Bilton, he is a god, an AI messiah. He's fawned on all over in news articles, doted on in interviews. I looked him up on the internet and it said, Altman, who is 38, is the most powerful person in AI development today. His views, his dispositions and choices may matter greatly to the future we all inhabit perhaps more than those of the U.S. president. Uh, it occurred to me that this is how the Antichrist is going to take over. Uh, I've just read a book here called Marking the Masses, which, I'm going to, which I've reviewed in the next edition of Light for the Last Days, which tells you how they're working on this project, how it'll end up with the Mark of the Beast system. And you can see that, I'm not saying that this guy, Sam Altman, is the Antichrist, but I think there's someone like him will emerge. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But he'll be recruited and then they'll say, present, you and I'll present with all the problems and he'll come up with a solution and they'll say, okay, well you take over, man. I don't think it's going to be some politician like Macron or some of the other ones who've been touted for it. I think it'll be someone who'll come out of this high-tech world, will then offer a solution, then it says the ten kings will give them his power and he will then take over and run the world. Inevitably, this is also going to lead to a crackdown on Christianity and preaching the gospel. Already, AI systems are producing some pretty strong anti-Christian material. I said some of them are even saying that they, need, they can rewrite the Bible to bring it up to date with how people think today. So actually, we're supposed to change our thinking to fit in with the Bible, not change the Bible to fit in with our thinking. But you can see that they could come up with something like that. They've already done it in China, actually. China's got its own Bible, which has been rewritten, which... Communist Party agrees with. Uh, also, they'll be able to crack down websites with prophetic content, churches preaching the gospel, and speaking about the second coming, and seek to close them down. It wouldn't be too hard to do. They could easily find it out, what we're saying here, and say we're going to close you down. Haven't done so yet, though we've had one or two skirmishes. <laughs> but you can see that how this can be used to actually, in the end, crackdown on Christianity. Of course, it's happening in big way in China. Uh, China's also now made a law that you can't post anything on the internet without permission from the government. So uh, anyone who wants to post any Christian material on the, the uh, internet, forget it. We've actually tried to get our Chinese version of the Ten Signs onto the internet. No way. Can't do it. Anybody got any ideas how we could do it? Let me know. But I mean, at the moment, it's not been possible, not in communist China. So China's long persecuted Christians, censoring and suppressing them, and all kinds of discrimination against Christians, even jailing and killing them. Uh, even when they did print Bibles, they made sure that the Bibles only went to certain people they approved of, not to everybody. But now there's a new report that's from Release International, that's a uh, one of the Christian organizations that stands for persecuting churches, saying the communist regime is trying to suppress any visible presence of Christianity. Uh, new measures will confine all religious activities to official venues and ban outdoor display of religious symbols. Places of worship can no longer be named after denominations, churches, or individuals. Religious leaders must clearly show they are supporting the communist party and its leadership. Moves have become the tightening of screws designed to eliminate the visible presence of Christianity in China. It's illegal to post evangelical Christian content online 
without special permission of the Communist Party, and they won't give it to you. Under regulations, only the five officially sanctioned religions, the three self-church, Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, Taoism, Buddhism, and Islam, are eligible to apply for a special license. Those churches are actually under the control of the, the Communist Party. And if they get out of line, they're censored. The house churches, which are the independent churches, which would be like our church, are uh, becoming more and more barred from meeting and sharing anything of a religious nature online. <clears throat> so if that happened here, they could bar most of our activity. Do you think it will happen here? Yeah. Ultimately, I think in the tribulation, that's what they'll move to. It'll be a pattern for control of the Christians. One of the things you may notice is that in the media, our media, you do have information about the Chinese persecuting the Uyghur Muslims, and I'm not opposed to them saying that because it is bad. You don't get any information about them persecuting and suppressing Christianity. That's because our media is also kind of controlled not to highlight anything positive about Christianity. In the Antichrist time, this will be a worldwide situation. Persecution and suppression of Christianity while anti-Christian propaganda rules in the media, in whatever internet remains. Nevertheless, the Bible tells us that huge numbers are going to come to Christ in that time. So it's not all hopeless. God will continue to have a witness. Read Revelation chapter 7, you read how <coughs> in the tribulation time, God's going to choose 144,000 Jewish men who are going to go out and preach the gospel uh, with great power from all the tribes of Israel. And after that, it says, uh, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered and sang to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see what that says there? Out of the great tribulation, there'll be some pretty terrible things going on. Christianity will be persecuted and suppressed. But there'll be a great multitude who are going to come to faith in Jesus. So how can that happen? Well, our God is more powerful than the evil one. And it says that there'll be a great multitude who bear witness to Jesus during that time. <clears throat> and it says then, Therefore they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of them will shepherd them and lead them to the, to the living water, fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Uh, when it comes to the showdown, actually God is stronger than the devil. Praise God. And God's going to have the last word. And according to my understanding, these are the tribulation saints who come to the faith after the rapture. Many of them are going to be martyred, be resurrected, and enter into the millennial reign of the Messiah, along with those previously taken in the rapture and those who survived the tribulation as believers. So God's going to have a witness. God's got a witness now. And God wants us to be a witness, to get the word out, to tell people about how to be saved and how to have faith in Jesus before the time of judgment comes. And God's going to have the last word. After seven years of tribulation on the earth, the Lord Jesus will then return with his saints. He will throw the beast and the false prophet straight into hell. He'll chain up the devil in the abyss so that he can't deceive the nations anymore. And according to Revelation 20, he will set up his millennial kingdom, ruling from Jerusalem and bringing real peace and safety to people all over the world, starting in Israel. And the Bible says that's going to happen. It says it in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 2, beat swords into plowshares, all that bit. It says it in Ezekiel 30, 40 to 48, about the restored temple. It says it in Zechariah 14, when the Messiah comes and stands on the Mount of Olives 
and the earth becomes ruled by the Lord. And it says it in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation. So life on earth will then continue. Not with AI ruling, artificial intelligence, but with the most supreme intelligence in the universe. That's the Lord God in the person of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. One who is the creator, the redeemer, and the final judge. And he is all-knowing and all-powerful. And when he comes back, all this stuff which I've told you about, all the evil is just going to be zapped and destroyed in a moment of time. And those who are on the Lord's side will have a glorious and wonderful future. And I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Because it's going to be beyond any ability to creature to describe. Paul says that the eye hasn't seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has it entertained the imagination of the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So the end is going to be wonderful. Be a bit of trouble on the way getting there. But in the end, it says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God, of his Christ, his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Praise the Lord. So make sure you're there. Make sure you are in a right relationship with God. Put your trust in Jesus, repent of sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe the gospel and know that you have eternal life through faith in Jesus, by your faith in Jesus now. Praise the Lord. Let's just have a word of prayer, then I'll hand back to Andy. Lord, we do thank you for the great and wonderful promises which are in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've said these things are going to happen, and they will happen. Lord, we pray you help us with the bad side, with all the dark things which are taking place. Pray particularly for Israel, Lord, and as we see this peace being proposed, sounds good, but it may be bad, and we just pray you'll give wisdom and help to the leaders, particularly to Netanyahu, any decisions which he has to make, and we pray you protect and defend your people, and we pray, Lord, that you'll also draw them to recognize that they need a Messiah, they need a Savior, Yeshua. They can't trust in the men, but they can trust in God. They can trust in Jesus. We pray this for all the peoples in the world, including our own friends and family who don't know you. And we pray, Lord, that in these last days that many people will turn to faith in Jesus and be saved and be ready for your return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.